now entering the Phantom Squad Podcast. Enjoy the madness. Hey everyone, this is going to be another episode of the Phantom Squad Podcast. My guest this week is artist and illustrator Mark Maddox. How's it going? Everything's going great, and I'm so glad to be on the show. I appreciate it. Now, how did you get into, like, uh, I know you, with most, I ask, like, your fandoms. How did you get into fandom exactly, like, starting out before getting into the art aspect of it? Um, I was a little kid. I was in... in <laughs> In, living in Germany, we're on the, uh, uh, what they call the economy. We lived out on the farmland first and then for a few years. And then we moved on to the base because there was a glut of too many people. So on, on, I'd see little things on television that would fascinate me. Like I saw, uh, a, a hammer horror film, science fiction movie called X, the unknown. And I saw these little bits and pieces. I actually saw, uh, an Ed Wood movie. I saw, um, uh, Bride of the Monster, or whatever the it's got ten different names. The one with Lagosi with the with the high platform shoes. Oh yes. At the end, beating Tor, he he would hit Tor and Tor. It took him like four seconds to react. He'd go like, ah, like that. <laughs> Scared the hell out. I was only five years old when he got eaten by the octopus. But um, and and started off with little little bits where I started going, oh, that's interesting. Oh, that that's interesting. And I wasn't like interested in sports. I mean, I like to go outside and play, ride my bike, run around kickball and all that. But I didn't, I was not a sports person. And I, I, at first it was sort of like, um, wait, what is this? What is this? And then the, uh, the science fiction movie Kronos came on and it was this giant robot sucking energy out of the earth and everything. And, and I, and I, and a little, saw a little sliver of journey to the center of the earth with James Mason. And I was like, what is this? Saw Star Trek in 67, which oddly enough, the base got the canisters or Armed Forces Television got them in 67. They were a year behind American television, but they showed them in order. They showed them in production order, not in, not in, uh, and so I was, and then Irwin Allen, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea and Lost in Space, which depending on what season you were on, you know, you, you were seeing something really good or really bad. Yes. And <laughs> so that kind of, that was there. And then it kind of went away, moved, moved to the United States and then had my cranium literally unscrewed put off to the side and somebody ladled in for two solid well eight, actually 18 months color television which i had never seen i was blown away by it saturday morning cartoons never heard of that and monster movies every weekend in color and it was like just ladling this stuff into my skull i mean i lost my mind johnny quest land of the giants man from uncle uh, uh, the Fantastic Four, the original Fantastic Four cartoon, the original, I mean, just, uh, and I was like, oh my God, you guys have Christmas here in this country every day, like every day, and especially on Saturdays. So I went crazy for that, went dormant again. My dad gets shipped off to Vietnam and I moved to, um, to, uh, to my mom's hometown for a while while he's gone. We moved to, um, uh, Cumberland, Maryland. And then they had this guy called Sir Graves Gasly, who was like a horror show host. And I was enjoying that. And then what happened is my brother and I, in our incredible boredom while we were living there, went up to this store. We walked like two miles to get to this little grocery store and came back with a stack of comic books. And I was like, I, I've arrived. 
I mean, I, I had already had some comic books in my life. I had some really good early FFs and stuff like that. But when I saw that stuff, it was like Jack Kirby became my hero. So I had, you know, and, you know, it didn't go off when the TV set went off. You still had the comic book. So I'd read the comic books and I'd get all the weird stuff from DC, the strange science fiction stuff, a lot of reprints and everything. And I wanted to draw, moved again to North Carolina. Now I was full-blown comic book fan, but then I had two other buddies of mine and we kind of egged each other on drawing and stuff and started to just, started to just go, Hey man, I think I can draw like a superhero and this guy would do like a crude stick figure and then put the meat on it and then the clothes are, and it's like oh that kind of works and then i would watch them and they, everybody would watch each other and we'd egg each other on at the at the dining room table with our typewriter paper and ballpoint pens and it just it just kept going and going and around that time i said i want to be an artist that's what i want my dad went nuts for it he was like oh my god he goes, honey, do you see what this boy is doing? He's, he's drawing. <laughs> My dad was so poor as a child. He was 13 years old, had his own apartment, worked in the oil fields in, in, in Oklahoma, that he was shocked to see one of his kids had this breakout kind of talent. And he pushed it, too. He loved it. He made sure I was in art school in high school. And then right after I got out of uh, high school, instead of going to college, I was like, he sent me into this little uh, very inexpensive art school. It's here in town uh, with a really great teacher and that kind of solidified. And that's where the professionalism came in. The guy was a, a, a tip top professional old guy from the Chicago art Institute. And that's awesome. And so, you know, for a long time I was working as a professional artist doing regular stuff, t-shirts and ads for stuff and just the regular stuff that you expect. Uh, and then I started to, um, you know, I, I reached, uh, about my forties, I think it was had kids and everything. And then I started to realize I wanted something more out of life just beside, I mean, I loved my day job. It was fine doing just advertising for people and stuff. I didn't have a problem with that, but I wanted more. So at night I started doing some book covers and, and monster magazine covers and stuff. And, you know, I mean, and, and then it just blossomed from there, you know? So, and then later it became a full, the full-time profession. So. Awesome. Yeah. But that too, that's a big thing that, they were very encouraging because I know with a lot of the times when it comes to a, a lot of parents, when you're telling them, I'm going to be in the arts, they're like, oh, get a real job. So yeah, it's man. really cool that they were very that supportive. I know with my family was the same way. They were like, we see you do these voices and you do all this. You're good at singing. We're going to we were going to give you the encouragement that we weren't given. And so same with my grandma, too. She was the same way that she grew up in that same era you're going to do the same job that we did before you and so Absolutely. when they saw this talent they blossomed so i'm glad to hear that they were very supportive because i know that sometimes that story is not always there no as a matter of fact my art teacher back in the 1930s or whatever told his dad they were working on a farm out west and he said to his dad uh i think i've got the talent to be an artist i want to go to this real professional art school i'm talking about tip top art school and it was like and the dad goes, well, and he, he didn't push back, but his grandfather walked in the room and he told him about it. And he said, uh, his, his grandfather said, I figured you'd find some way not to actually have to work. And he turned right around to him and said, grandfather, kiss my ass, is what he <laughs> said, because he was very talented. I mean, I saw his work from the 1940s. And oddly enough, this man went 
with seven other guys and built an Air Force base uh, down near Panama City, uh, Tyndall Air Force Base. He was one of the first seven guys. He was the newspaper guy, the signage, the uh, t uh, the training manuals for the machine gunnery school, the one that uh, Jimmy Stewart and Clark Gable went to uh, and all oh, that kind man. of stuff. But he started with seven other guys, this base, that was their job. And he was the graphics and informational and newspaper production guy, right? Well, that's where I was born. Oddly enough, that was where, where in the 19, I was born in 61 at that same base. It was very strange to have this guy that set up the base end up being my teacher, you know, decades later, years later, wasn't that many decades, but you know, um, you, you, um, I, I am very grateful for my father. I think my father really, like I said, I mean, working in the oil fields at the age of 13 is in during the, I think that's during the Dust Bowl era, if I'm not mistaken, back then. That's that whole yeah. grapes of wrath kind of crap, you know, Tom Jode uh, kind of thing. And and um, you, um, you, you find, he, he just, what he saw, I mean, just, surprised him and you know it was it was a it was a drawing from a cover of jimmy olsen comics of superman it was i could tell the pencils were by kirby but the inks were by neil adams on the cover and i just had the comic there and i i redrew it on a piece of paper i still have it upstairs someplace uh and i showed it to my dad and he just lost his mind he's like oh my god you can do this you know, yeah, and everything. So, you know, I was lucky and my mom was always supportive, you know, to this day, I still take my artwork over and show her sometimes. And, you know, she's always like, yay. So it's good. You know. Yeah. That's awesome that you could do the freehand because I know a lot of, I know a lot of uh, artists now and like animator stuff, they started with doing that same thing that you did, but instead of freehanding, a lot of them did a lot of tracing. <laughs> Right, kind of right. mimic over top. So the fact that you can just freehand, it just gives you an upper level. Well, so did I you mean, start you use, like the superheroes? grid method, the grid method, like the Albrecht Durer. Have you ever seen the grid method? You ever? You yes, know, I did that in high school where you take the picture and you go step by step by step. Yeah, cubicle. I mean, in order, the reason that you that I mean, I can sit there and draw something uh, freehand and, and make a person look like they are. But it depends on how long you're willing to take. Like I drew, yes. drew a picture of Marlon Brando several years ago and it was like, I, I just did the whole thing where you take the, the pen and you hold it out like that and you're, and you're getting your measurements that way and then you're placing them on the thing. But that, that takes like days to get, to get everything just right. So some people will use the grid. I still use the grid to this day. Some people use opaque projectors. I mean, Roman Rocca, everybody does Drew Struzan. Everybody projects or Xeroxes up or whatever they feel they have to do, not because they have to, but because they're never going to make any money if they, if they sit there and try to do it in the classical style. Now, you step outside, you want to do an oil painting of the neighbor's car and their house and the tree across there with a the beautiful sunlight. Yeah, you're not going to go out there and you know take a photograph of it, walk back inside, and trace it because that's just gross. You're 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 enjoying studying the shapes. You're enjoying yes. studying the light and seeing. Or, or if I place that dot of red right there, bang! Oh, that looks fantastic. You know, uh, Van Gogh and impressionists and stuff, which to me is by is by the way just as vital as learning the. Uh, the very tight renderings of people like James Bama and his Doc Savage covers or, or this, that, or the other, you, 
you you also can learn massive amounts from impressionism and stuff as well. It's the same like I learned when I was in uh, I was at a, a what was it a mission trip with my church and I was because they're like you're the art kid we wanted to do a mural for them in their lunchroom and they're like can you freehand I'm like yes I can freehand this mural but how long do I have and they're like well you got two days I was like well I'm gonna show you what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna draw it out use your projector that y'all use for your music and then just go over my drawing on the wall and just blow it up. I'm like, it takes, I was like, if I had a week, I could do it by hand, but it, I need the blow it up so I can do it for two days for you. I was well, like, one to draw thing, it and another day to paint it. <laughs> well, the other problem would be that if you did it that way, there's a very, very good chance you'd eventually back away from it and go, oh my gosh, the top, top of their head is when you're working on such a huge surface, you've got no way to keep it under control. Your dimensions under control. So yeah, I mean it's 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 a commercial art tool, just like anything else. But you know, a lot of people, you know, I mean, I've got the the Norman how to paint like Norman Rockwell, and he had this colossal projector. I mean, it's the size of a of a of a of a tiny uh, uh, you know a Honda car you know or something you know <laughs> the original Honda Civic is about the same thing. and any any projected but but you draw and you stylize and there's so many things that you change in the middle of it and on the fly I mean you're drawing into it and altering and changing and I mean Rockwell's faces on his people were never what you saw projected they were always the faces were a little long or the nose was a little extra large or, you know, and, and then there, and then going back in there and, and using the oil paints and everything like that. I mean, that's, that's, that's a hell of a lot of work, you know? Oh yeah. The big compliment that I got from the, the people that there is the way I did the coloration of the native American on the mural because they were like, okay. Cause I did it. Cause I didn't want to go too like movie style Indian. And I didn't want to go too like close to like, you know, latino and i did it just to hint they're like thank you you gave us the exact representation like everybody else before you made it too stereotypical and made us look like mexicans and i was like no no i was like i try to portray portray like what you actually look like because i actually seen you because i've never seen like we were from georgia we don't see them a lot except for the festivals and we were in oklahoma so sure. i was like i tried to match what you would look like to me in real life right and that was right. their big compliment that i matched their skin tone that wasn't offensive like other artists have done in the past. Well, yeah, I mean, there's always that crappy shorthand. I mean, and that's the thing, too, with some comic books from like way back. You look at, you know, the comics from uh, from Belgium, Tintin, you know, the, yes. the and everything. And you look at the very earliest books that he did, and there was some pretty heavy duty racist stuff at that time. It wasn't yelled at or anything. It wasn't it wasn't uh, people didn't shake their finger at it at the time. Uh, but it was a lousy, lousy shorthand for like black people or different types. And uh, eventually, you know, I mean, those are considered, you know, they're, they're put in there with a, with a, what do you call it? I don't, not a caveat. What's the word at the beginning? Like, hey, this is, could be a considered offensive to some, but at the time period, it wasn't. I don't think they should burn yes. the book, but I think they should put, uh, you know, some kind of a, uh, I guess, for lack of a better term, a warning on it or a note at yeah. the very beginning. I think, like, cultural, yeah. I think it's like, uh, culture, uh, what is the word? Uh, something sensitivity, I think. <laughs> well, I mean, you have to, you have to do that. I mean, there's things that I, I, there's movies and stuff that I love that have that same situation. I, I, I hated Gone with the Wind as a kid. I really did. But then after watching Ken Burns, The Civil War, all you know 47 90 932 hours of it 
I was like, oh, I, I feel like I know a lot more about the Civil War. So then when I watched it, Gone with the Wind again, a lot of things plugged in information-wise that made it more interesting. And so I liked it. But I still think that, you know, for me, put, put, a, put a note at the beginning, you know? Yes. You don't want to burn the film. You don't want to do any, any crap like that. But you also have to say, hey, look, this stuff at that time considered considered uh, acceptable and it isn't you know and that's all it's you know it's just that you gotta you gotta I do think it. it's sort of like with blazing saddles like a reason that i think a lot of people are like okay with that film is because we found out later on that a lot of the stuff that was controversial was written by the people of that ethnicity well yeah and 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 i think that um I think Blazing Saddles gets around it the way too because they're not actually saying all this stuff is normal. I mean, there's there's stuff in there where um, it's it it, it kind of shoves it in your face yeah. and says this is a movie about racists and stuff like that and 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 and, and what jerks they are, um, you know. And there's some there's some very funny stuff in that movie, but you still kind of go oh. Wow, yes. they said that, but you know, I mean, you know, the 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 heroes are the are are the are the black guy and the white guy at the end of the film, and they're friends. Yeah. And that's probably the bottom line. But uh, and the and the racists get their comeuppance. But yeah, so it's like I always laugh because I think there was an interview with Mel Brooks where he was like, "Yeah, right in the film, I went to Richard it was like, hey, uh, I just made this joke,' and he was like, "Well, uh, that's a." okay because i just wrote a white guy saying the n-word like 27 times is that okay with you <laughs> right right yeah yeah i mean there was some funny jokes in that movie. which i think that that cast if you ever seen the writing cast in that movie i think it was like richard pryor um it was, it was a lot of the big top like comedians of that time wrote on that film that a lot of people don't realize oh yeah i didn't that it was know that just mill by himself like he brought in a lot of a lot of comedians of different ethnicities to write for that movie. And it was like the list of like, wow, the people he brought in for that film. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So when you were drawing, uh, did you just do superheroes or did you do like monsters? Cause I know your main focus now is a lot of the universal monsters and stuff like that. Um, it's, it was, um, at the time it was, it was both. There was, um, you look at an old sketchbook of mine from like 1971 or 72 and it's like uh uh one picture would be like frederick march's dr jekyll and mr hyde and then the next picture would be the cyclops from the x-men and the next one would be somebody's face from star trek and the next one would be uh, you know it's just it was just all of it you know it was all all the same thing. Um, I did a I uh, did a a, a Kamandi poster because I couldn't get enough comics at my age. I mean, I, I I got like I think like a quarter a week allowance or something like that, so I could get like maybe two comic books or something. But I ended up um, I wanted more, so I kind of drew I drew because I wanted more. Um, uh, and, and, and I, uh, when the first issue of Marvel's, uh, Planet of the Apes magazine came out, I literally took a huge sheet of paper, like it was huge and sat there and recreated the cover, just eyeballed it and redrew the, the, the cover on a large sheet of paper and then just thumbtacked it up to the wall because I wanted a big poster of it, you know, 
I mean, granted, it wasn't <laughs> nearly as good as the, <laughs> I mean, I, I think my skills have improved some since in, in, in almost 50 years, but, uh, but at the time, you know, I, I wanted it and it was a good way to keep me inspired, you know? Oh, yes. I did that in high school when I learned about the grid method. I did that with the giant size X-Men. I was like, I want to do my rendition and do a giant drawn version of myself for the number one. And I was like, because I can just go and buy a poster. I was like, I want to try and redraw it in this bigger scale using that method. Now, for the monsters, what? so how did that come about? Uh, are you licensed with Universal to do the classic monsters or did you just kind of no. they saw your work? No, most of those are done from magazine covers. I mean, there's not really me licensing anything from them. There are some licenses I have, like with um, um, uh, Vincent Price's daughter, you know, artwork of her dad and stuff like that. But um, the Universal stuff, I'm known, I really got in the door because of Hammer. I started doing artwork for Little Shop of Horrors magazine, and really the Hammer, Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing films, I've done a lot of that. And as a matter of fact, I've even got a, a, a 1958 Terrence Fisher Dracula cover I'm fixing to start here in this upcoming month. But uh, I started with that. And most of these have been assignments for magazine covers, especially for Scream Magazine. S-C-R-E-E-M, uh, Daryl Maeski's um, uh, magazine that I've done a lot. Th those are actually like uh, not sold just through the mail or, or through comic shops. They're actually on the newsstands like in Barnes and Noble and Books a Million and things like that. Oh, cool. So is but, it sort of like the uh, Monsters of Hollywood magazine? So like back in the 60s and 70s? It's a little, it's more sophisticated than that. It's, uh, you know, for every photograph, there's like a thick full page of text. It's like when you open up the New Yorker and it's like text and text and text. And there's, a, <laughs> there's an image and stuff. It's more informational. I think the thing is with monster magazines in present day that have a lot of photographs, uh, well, so many of those photographs have been seen and seen and re-seen and re-re-seen and re-re-re-re-re-re. You know what I'm saying? That same yes. particular image of Christopher Lee with the blood. And you're like, well, I mean, you know, I, 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 I've seen this a million times. So a monster magazine that deals mostly with photographs, unless you're talking about one that has a whole new stash of stuff we haven't seen is, well, almost impossible. Uh, so Scream is more of a analysis reviews and history of of all kinds of films they do tip over into films that aren't science fiction fantasy or horror just because it's a it's a fairly um, sophisticated uh uh magazine and they want to deal with other stuff that people like too like the new blu-ray of something that's coming out and it's like well is that actually horror or something you know isn't that a crime film yeah it is but they still want to talk about it Oh, cool. So do they also talk about like the special effects? Because I know when I had Roy Woolley uh, come on, he said when he was looking at the old magazines, he would look at the pictures with a, with a magnifying glass and look in the background and see like, okay, in Dick Smith, like what he used in the background of his photos. Do they get into that aspect in that in the magazines of like what they use for certain creatures or? I, I would think so. You know, what's funny is I hardly ever get to read any of the monster magazines I do the work for because I'm on to the next cover. Although I used to read them a lot more before I started doing the covers of them and stuff. But now it's like if I if I stop to read, I'm not getting something done. I'm not getting a painting yes. or a drawing done or whatever. But I do know that a few years ago they did um, oh, Mick Garris's article uh, from John Carpenter's The Thing. 
and I did um, I did the cover. I, I I had already done artwork for John Carpenter's The Thing for um, Horror Hound magazine, which I did a collage of the monsters with Kurt Russell at the flamethrower. On this one, I wanted to concentrate just on my favorite single moment of the whole film, and that's that. You've seen the movie, right? The, yes, yes. Yeah, where the where the guy's head kind of pulls itself off and forms into a spider with two two little eyes looking out the throat. It's the heads upside down. Oh yes. And my friend, who actually lived here in Thomasville for a long time till he moved up 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 north, was actually the sculptor of the spider head for the film. So I that was oh, my favorite awesome. thing. Yeah, his name's Willie Witten, and I was so I contacted Willie when I I, I said I want to do just the spider head crawling near those old desks and everything and those chairs from the film. So he literally I would work on it and show it to him, and he goes, "You've got it as exact to the movie as it possibly." So I literally was going to the source for uh for this uh, this head and mick garris did the article i would imagine that he does talk quite a bit about the design and the creation and special effects uh, uh for that film although i haven't read the article i mean uh, that's probably mostly what you were his experience was on the making of that film yes that's that's one of those things my girlfriend she's i'm into the the makeup but she's more of the horror fan so that's one of our things that i was like i want to recreate that that piece and put in like a glass case yeah because yeah. i'm like i do cosplays i'm like I, I think i can make that and i talked to roy and i, I was talking to him uh, like off the episode i was like hey i'm working on this can you give me some tips and tricks of your 30 plus years in the special effects business of how to make this thing mm -hmm. look like a legit memorabilia prop Right, right, and and which one did you want to do the most? The, the spider head or what it was? Oh uh, yeah, just the the spider head itself. Yeah, yeah, that was great. I so I, remember, I was there the first day it 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 came out in the country, and everybody else was going to see ET and Road Warrior and Star Trek Two: Rathacon and Poltergeist and all that. And I went and I had seen all those, but I went the first day and watched this movie and I, it blew my mind. I just was like, Ugh. I walked out and I was just like, oh, my God, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen. And uh, and the there was some in, incredible inventiveness on that movie. I mean, the uh, they put a lot of work in making it so making it happen, but just they they let these guys cut loose on on the uh, on the inventiveness and i think the movie that's the reason it's such a it was a flop when it came out nobody went and saw it it was like in town in here in tallahassee it was here for like two or three weeks at the most which for a movie with a budget i think it had a budget like a 20 million bucks back then that was a huge amount of money and it was wait i mean that something like that has to stay you know three months or something to back then to make some money it was gone and uh, uh, and I, I just said, one of these days, that movie's going to get vindicated. It's going to be considered a classic. And I was absolutely right, you know. Oh, yes. Now, for you, uh, working with, like, knowing, like, the Hammer films and stuff. Working, like, I heard her interview on the Gilbert Goffrey podcast, if you haven't mentioned that. Uh, I, I think her name is Sarah. Uh, Vin uh, uh, Vincent Price's daughter. Oh, uh, Victoria Price. Yes, Victoria. Yeah, they had her on their interview. How was that for you being a Hammer fan film and a Vincent Price film, like getting to talk to his daughter, doing work for her, like doing stuff for her, for of her dad? Well, I mean, one, she's wonderful to talk to. Uh, she's a positive, very, very positive person. And uh, I think that her dad is um, 
her dad was such a class act. Uh, he was one of those people like Boris Karloff and Peter Cushing and stuff that knew that the villain doesn't yell and scream. The yelling and the screaming might be if you're in a scene where you're losing your mind, if you're insane, but under normal circumstances, you kind of actually talk really low key and you realize, oh man, we're really in trouble with this guy. He's really evil. Because he's not, when you see somebody, I, I there was a, a show I saw recently. I won't mention names where the villain is screaming his head off from the moment we first see him, and I'm like, I'm not threatened by this guy. It makes me just want to slap him in the face. Whereas if you watch these older horror film guys, they 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 are very low key but dangerous. You know, it's like like my girlfriend says, it isn't the dog that's barking that's going to bite you. It's the one that's quiet. And I'm oh, like, yes. yeah. So Vincent Price, uh, he's fun as heck to paint. I've, I've painted him as much as I've painted the Hammer guys. Uh, he did he did more of, more of his work for Amicus and then, of course, for AIP with those Edgar Allan Poe pictures. But I love painting him. And uh, uh, we have, uh, you know, uh, when we were at uh, Monsterama in Atlanta several years ago, uh, Victoria actually cooked for a group of people from her dad's cookbook, which we have a copy and Linda, Linda's been cooking from it lately. And my weight, I think is starting to go up because it's all these, <laughs> it's all these really nice, um, these really nice recipes from like French restaurants and Italian, I mean, in Paris and everything. And you're like, Oh, this tastes so good. But you know, those sauces are just heavily caloric carbs. <laughs> oh, just wonderful, but it's good stuff. So we, we try to, we try to put the brakes on cooking from it too much, but um, but yeah, I mean, wonderful, uh, a wonderful lady. Um, and her father is uh, a legend. What can you say? I mean, he's, he's one of the great, great, uh, you know, the thing is he, he, he really wasn't in as many horror films as people think they think his whole career was horror, but it wasn't, there was like maybe 20% of oh, his yeah. films were horror films. And, but the horror films with the young folks in the, in the sixties and seventies stuck you know, it was like, and then he became a horror film star, but he liked it. You know, he made money. He was able to buy his art that he loved and everything with it. So it all worked out. Oh, yes. And I, I think from her interview on that podcast, she talked about like how that cookbook that you talk about was a very, a big thing for him because he was like, yes, I know, I know for this actor, but I love the art of cooking. And I think like she said, like her mom, that was a big thing with them too, as they both love to cook. And she was the one that was like, hey, why don't we make this cookbook and put your name on it? Cause I know people would enjoy this. Yeah. I mean, uh, he, um, his, his two mate his, his acting, I think was actually his third passion. His first passion was art. Uh, it was, um, it was, uh, he started as a little kid or not a little kid, but a kid buying, uh, I think I want to say it was, it was etchings from, I don't remember. I, it was etchings from somebody. I want to say Rembrandt, but I don't know if that's right. I don't want to say that and have somebody go, yeah, you stupid, Mark. <laughs> but uh, later when we find out, but but that and then and then he became this great art historian. He had a television show for a while. He sold there was this really famous thing he did through um, Sears where he wanted to get artwork out to the general public. And so Sears in the 1950s, I think it was, and him teamed up and did a thing of getting art prints out of, of great pieces of artwork, you know, to where the regular guy on the street and family could could afford it, you know. Yes. 
and he did that. And then later, you know, but he was, I mean, there were, I've had a couple of different books of, uh, you know, art of Vincent Price, American art of, by Vincent Price and, and things like that. And he was very hardcore about that and then cooking and then acting, which was actually a third, I believe, you know. Oh, yes. He was very, and I like that she talks about too, that everybody, he was a very eccentric person when it came to all three of those things. And, and how, I can't remember what it was. There was a story she talked about. I don't know if you've heard it about being on the set of Batman and uh, I think it was either him or Burt Ward was talking about it, but uh, there was a running joke with the Eggman and they were cracking eggs and I think it was something with Robin, but they just kept doing it and kept doing it. And because they thought it was funny, Adam West and Vincent Price were doing it, kept doing the scene as a joke to keep putting eggs down his pants. <laughs> or some crack to make, I think they were teasing Robin or think, yeah, I think they were teasing Robin or something. And Burt was like, yeah, they kept doing that scene over and over again because him and Adam just thought it was so funny of my reaction, getting eggs down my suit. Oh my, you know, that's the thing you can tell by, I've seen plenty of photographs of him with other famous people and him working with Alice Cooper and stuff like that. And it looked like he had a really good sense of humor. As a matter of fact, I see pictures of him with like Christopher Lee on the set of, I want to say it was the oblong box or something like one of those films and they're laughing their fannies off they're playing chess, but they're laughing about something. And apparently they got along like a house on fire. I mean, he was very accessible, uh, very easy to talk to. And I think that I think the youth responded to it, especially with things like, like I said, with the horror films of the 60s and 70s, the Dr. Fives movies later do uh, being the voice on Michael Jackson's thriller, you know, kind of kept him in the in the limelight. I mean, even when he went out at the in the movie Edward Scissorhand, yes. although, you know, uh, which was a great a great uh, a great part for him. I was so glad to see that that he got to do one more thing, and um, you know, he's just one of those people that you know kind of winked at the fact that he was in horror and and didn't mind it and 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 was very good at it. I mean, he was very, very good at it. I mean, he would, he, I mean, I've had audio books where he's narrated Edgar Allan Poe and it's, he's perfectly designed for it. And he doesn't, uh, he didn't turn around and go, I hate doing this. You know, he wasn't one of those types, you know, I think that shows. Yeah, he didn't have a stock moment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which is funny because later, you know, Leonard Nimoy recanted that and said, you know what, maybe I ought to quit pushing. Yes. When I have both books of, I'm not Spock, and then you put it next to the book of I am Spock, and you're just like, in the span of these, between these years, he made these two separate books. <laughs> well, and it's funny, too, because I remember when I am not Spock just came out, and yet the Star Trek fans still bought it. <laughs> it's funny, it got, <laughs> it got bought by Star Trek fans, and they read about it, and, you know, seeing stuff of him, like, being in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, the play, playing the Jack Nicholson part, uh, McMurphy, and, and, and everything, and yet and yet, um, I think Shatner had a little bit of that, too, with Kirk. And it was one of those things where it's kind of like, you know what? Maybe we're holding on a little too tight to proclaiming we're not this person or we're not that and everything like that. You know, we, 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 we ate because of this. We had homes because of this. We had cars. We had lives. We had families. Maybe, you know, it's like Boris Karloff, somebody said, aren't you, weren't you tired of being typecast because of the Frankenstein monster? And he goes, something to the effect of like, oh, the, the old boy was good to me. He kept me fed my whole life, you know? Sometimes it depends upon your attitude. Oh, yeah. I think, like, they had an interview with, uh, Gilbert did an interview with his his uh, uh, children as well. And that's what they said, too, that he was like, 
I kept doing it because they wanted me to come back and I, I like doing the part. Yeah. And um, so many people love me for it. Yeah. As a matter of fact, Daryl, uh, the, the, um, um, publisher of Screen Magazine was on a Gilbert Godfrey part podcast and mentioned my, was showing some of my work on the show. I've never oh, found yeah. it. I'd like to, I'd like to see it someday, but it was, uh, yeah, Daryl, they did, uh, apparently, I think Daryl was planning on coming back there sometime, but they showed some of my, uh, showed some of my artwork and then Daryl told him, yes, this is from Mark Maddox and he won the Rondo award. For, and Gilbert knew exactly. It's like, are you talking about Rondo Hatton, a guy from the 1940s who didn't need makeup to play monsters? Yeah, I mean, it was like, yeah, Gilbert, <laughs> you know. So Gilbert, Gilbert's like a monster movie fan. I love that, you know. Oh yeah, I found that out through the podcast because I just I was like Gilbert Godfrey, and then you're like, wow, he's all in this stuff that you never thought he would be into. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's and he's funny too. <laughs> <laughs> Although yes. outrageous, it's not for everybody. Sometimes you can't just play that in the room. Just full oh, of people. Oh yes, there's a joke I've said it a couple times on this podcast, talking to people who I know are Batman fans about the running joke about uh, Caesar Romero. Uh, I don't know if you've heard that joke that he says on the podcast about. We all know that Caesar Romero was a. He played the Latin lower, but he was openly a gay man. And there's uh, the running joke that on the series. Uh, 66 for Batman that to get pleasure uh, Cesar Romero would have young 20 something year old men circle him in a circle and throw uh, tangerine slices at his bare ass cheeks <laughs> and he asked Adam and Bert and Bert was like uh, I've I never saw that and thank God I didn't he didn't try that with me and then Adam only Adam's response was um all I know is I never saw it, but uh, we always had fresh orange juice on set. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. So that's, that's his funny. funny joke of every person who ever worked on Batman. He always asked them about that story. <laughs> Jesus. Funny. Yes, 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 yes. So with your art, how did you come up with your, your style? Has it always been your style? Because I know it's more of that old school sort of matte painting did you kind of just grow into that or was it kind of your style from the very beginning? Cause I know for me, I both love Andy Warhol and Vincent Van Gogh. And so my style is that very poppy sixties, but I use the right. thickness of Van Gogh on top of it. So it's kind of this mash of my both cool. loves. So cool. how did you come about with that style or kind of, did you just naturally come up with it? I, I think that um, first off, you know, uh, the King Jack Kirby, uh, yes. It is and always will be the king. I, I the bulldozer, as I like to call him, because he did more artwork. You know, literally, there's some people that that honestly have said, and I'm talking about you know people that of of repute that have said that if Jack Kirby wasn't working in the '60s, we might have seen the end of comic books because mm -hmm. because of the sheer volume of pushing that Marvel style, which was basically from a visual standpoint his this this super dynamic you know hand in your face all that kind of stuff where you're just like wow this stuff is punchy it's punchy it's 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 really dynamic it's got its own form of grace i mean you know famous or uh, other comic book artists like gil kane uh, uh looked at the work and go you know kirby's anatomy was just so wrong but it was so right in other words, it, it didn't matter. He would put muscles where there weren't muscles. He would put 
you know, stuff on it. You're like, is that right? But then you go like, who cares? Who cares? This guy is telling a story and he's slamming it in your face from a two-dimensional little piece of printed newsprint paper. And you're just completely engulfed by it. That for me, that and Dr. Seuss are my first two people that I looked at their work and went, wow. Dr. Seuss almost had the same thing Jack Kirby had. He just, but he did it with his Cat in the Hat and Green Eggs and Ham yes. and all those other great books, which I still love to this day. I've got a stack of them upstairs, never going to get rid of them. Yertle the Turtle, whatever. And and he had that energy and and knew exactly what it was he wanted to to convey to people. Kirby, the same thing. So it started off with comics because you, to me, Jack Kirby did something like like Seuss and other artists, great artists to me in some ways, when you look at what they're doing, they leave information behind as to how you can do what they're doing. Now, that might sound stupid to some people and obvious and all that kind of stuff. But what I mean is there's other artists that I look at and I have no clue as to how they could have done that arm or the hand or the face or the facial expression. But you look at Kirby and it's almost like, okay, I see what he did, and here's my little piece of paper, and you kind of draw either it or something like it based on what you do. You go, oh, it, it worked. I did it. And then you progress. You, you, know, you keep learning. He was one of those people that did that. Yeah, it was so, so simple but so complex at the same time. Yeah, and, and, then, and then my first, or maybe my first hero of very realistic illustration was James Bama, uh, who did the, uh, did you ever see any of the old Doc Savage paperback covers from the sixties? The I, uh, so. I have a couple of those. I think I've seen a lot of his work. Well, I mean, there's different people that did them later. If you've got the, the print run between, I don't know, sometime in the, in the sixties and up into the set, uh, maybe 72, I don't know exactly, but his covers are absolutely super realistic all right so here's 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 one of the covers this is uh it's hard to see but if you look it up how realistic super realistic that guy is in the back he looks like a photograph yeah i thought that's what that's what it was wow that is amazing so if you want to when you get a chance go to your google image search look at doc savage the midas man bomba cover and you'll get a nice big picture of it and then here's another one is one of his more famous covers, The Land of Long Juju. I'm tilting it oh so the light gosh. doesn't bounce off of it. But if you look at it, I mean, it looks like photography, but it's not. That is crazy. Yeah, I mean, this was this was great, great, great stuff. Yeah, a lot of the ones that I, now that you show me that, a lot of the Doc Savages that I have are, I, I think they're probably the other artists because they're a lot more the classic comic style yeah, I mean, it's, he's been, I mean, it was it was weird because, okay, Doc Savage was actually invented, I think it's like his 88th birthday this month or 80th, I don't know, people are talking about it on Facebook, but that the original stuff was drawn, Doc Savage had a normal haircut and wore a suit, but because science fiction was big in the 60s and paperbacks, they had James Bama kind of science fiction him up a little bit, and he got that kind of really closely cropped hair with the widow's peak and his fists are like the size of darn cinder blocks and all that. And, and, but it still looked like a regular, it looked like a, a real person being photographed. 
uh, and they did that. So that guy was the first person I looked at and went, wow, wow. I mean, this is something else. So that was like my first hyper-realistic thing uh, of, of loving somebody's work. And then later, after he quit doing these, he started, he retired and he started doing Western art. And I, I think he had to finally actually retire from illustration, started doing Western art. And I think he retired a few years ago because I think he's like in his 90s. I wish wow. he had. I wish he had done a demo video or something. You could, you know, one of them forty bucks, and you know, he'll paint something. You watch it. I, I could learn so much. But he did this Western art of James Bama, and that is just like crazy stunning, like super realistic. Uh, even before they used the term photorealism, he was painting like a photorealist. And then in the early 70s, photorealism in the late 60s, early 70s, photorealism kicked in. Another thing I was fascinated with. But I knew that if I was crazy about photorealism and crazy about James Bama, and there was all this other stuff, I found myself also at the same time really getting into Impressionism, looking at Van Gogh, looking at, uh, 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 looking at, uh, uh, Monet and Manet and mayonnaise and whoever else. I mean, I was literally just, just, uh, you know, and I'm like, what, what is going on here? And then I realized that their lighting was the most realistic lighting. Impressionist got lighting better than anybody else. It was about the lighting. It was about when you, when you see it, you know, or like the first time I ever saw a Picasso, I never liked Picasso until I saw real Picassos. Then I'm like, oh, wait a minute, I get it. It's vivid. It's energized. It's colorful. It's it's vivid. Uh, and and you know, going to galleries and things like that. And 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 so it it like I said, Kirby and Bomb is probably ground zero for it. And then everything else you just grab. Now, I also get a feel from your art, too, the style. I forget his name, but he was big in the 60s with Warhol. He did, like, the realistic, like, food paintings. They were, like, I can't remember what. They were, like, 3D. Like, you could look at it. It was, like, I can't remember his name, but he, I think it's went Von Braun. But he was, it was, uh, he was in that same era as, as Andy Warhol and the guy who did the comic, the pop, the big pop art stuff. Yeah. I can't remember his name, but he did, like, the realistic, like, very thick matte paint type of stuff. I don't know if you had, were inspired by his stuff or. Well, there's a guy. There are guys that I've seen that have done very, very realistic, where there's just like an apple and a cup of coffee, or, or an apple and a and a and a a, a teapot, a a, a, a a you know a metal teapot with all the reflections, and it's like okay, there's only two objects there. You tell this to somebody saying, "Boy, that sounds boring." Well, it is more than just about about looking at, you know, being told what the subject is and go, okay, there it is. It's more than that. It's, I have given so much attention, love and affection to this that it cannot be denied. And so you look at it and you go, wow. You know, it, it, in a way, it's sort of like telling people, hey, quit looking at the big picture and thinking that's all there is. Sometimes it's the little things in life that are amazing. And people with very good perception can capture that on a two-dimensional surface. I think, too, though, that I don't throw out people go, well, don't you hate the kind of paintings where they put some splotches on the canvas and or, or they drip or whatever? I'm like, no, no, not if I think there's actual intent there. Jackson Pollock is interesting to me. Norman Rockwell. I hate people that hate oh, yeah. Norman Rockwell. I, I, I can't stand that. I was in 
I was in the Florida State University Library and I found this gigantic book on photorealism, which I eventually was able to track down and buy my own copy. But I pulled it out and opened it up and some snotty kid in the school who decided that that wasn't real art wrote on the front page, first page in chart, uh. this is not art. And I'm like, uh, you know, one of these days you'll be dead and they'll still be looking at these paintings. So shut up. I mean, I, it's I, like I, with Jackson Pollock, it's, it's a lot of people don't realize like, oh, he just threw paint. I'm like, no, the man had battles with his mental and like drug abuse and alcoholism that his expression, he would basically how he would do his paintings. I didn't know if you know this, how he would do his paintings is he would get super drunk and basically poke holes in the paintings and just slaughter it over the place. And it was him his way of coping or getting out the frustration of the alcoholism and his mental state onto the canvas. Yeah. I mean, uh, I've seen, uh, uh, I've seen, uh, some Jackson Pollocks and I go, you know, there's, uh, you know, to sit there and say, I know what he's saying. I don't. Okay. But what I did know is that when I saw it, it was vivid. It was, there was a whole lot going on in there. And I, I have only dabbled with abstract a few times. I think I could do it if I wanted to go down that path. I just don't think I am because I don't have enough time. But I, but I look at it and I go, you know, this is valid. I think this is interesting. I find it to be uh, interesting. And definitely um, uh, seeing it in real life. Like I said, when I saw my first Picasso's, I'm like, oh, let's go. Oh, they're going to have some Picasso. Can you take a look? And then I saw some of the real famous ones, but I saw them in real life and I'm like, whoa, saw the Jackson Pollocks, saw, you know, and then to more realistic people saw uh, Edward Hopper and, and, and uh, all the Wyeths, you know, they're all, uh, you know, the, the family is, is, is incredible for different reasons. No, no three of them, the, the three main ones, none of, they're not alike their work oh yes but, it's like seeing a warhol up close like like you were saying with the realism like a lot of people don't realize how hard it is to get that realistic image of somebody in screen print yeah well and it's also the vividness of seeing the actual one i mean i've looked at some of my covers after they're done and i'm kind of like really what i uh, you know think somebody messed with it at the printing place and they it's too dark Ooh, that one pisses me off is when it's too dark. Uh, and, and then there's other times it's, you know, it's off or something's wrong or it's cut wrong. When you see the original of, uh, you know, of, of these pieces of art that we're discussing, it's, it's a, it's, it's a mind blower. It's like, wow, this is really incredible. I mean, anything from, from, you know, Renaissance paintings, I've seen them uh, go to, I've been to the National Gallery. One thing that really affected me years ago is I went to a famous Monsters of Filmland convention in Crystal City, Virginia in 93, 1993. And I went with a buddy of mine and it was, we were there a few days early. So we went to the National Gallery first and blew our minds with all this great artwork. Then I went to the Monster Movie Convention. And then that week we got, I got home from the convention went upstairs, pulled out this giant canvas and did a huge oil painting of Oliver Reed from Curse of the Werewolf with the blood running out of it. I mean, it was just huge. And this is oh, like I decades see. ago. Yeah. Uh, and it was just this huge, it was the combination of the convention and the National Gallery being, being hit right between the eyes with both of them the same weekend that it really affected me. Now I went dormant 
continued on my day job of, of doing commercial artwork, corporate artwork. And then, like I said, later I was like, hey, you know, I really want to participate in, in, in the monster movie fandom and stuff and, and, and doing, uh, doing uh, covers and stuff. But I've also done Blu-ray covers and I've done some, paper, some book covers, just novels and stuff. Not as many as Monster Magazine covers, but I like doing those too. Um, just did a movie poster uh, for my friend uh, uh, Josh Kennedy's um, uh, movie Cowgirls versus Pterodactyls. Which, uh, which I think is uh, streaming on Prime, or you can get the Blu-ray or whatever. And it was fun. It was fun to actually do artwork for a movie that wasn't out yet for a change, instead of yeah. you know, or or to do. I mean, I've got a, a friend of mine that wants me to do. Uh, um, he, he, well, actually, I better not talk about that because that probably because that. Uh, yeah, I'm not. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm I'll not edit talking. this part. Well, out. no, the, <laughs> the plot. If I bring it up, well, I got a buddy of mine having me do a. a I'll say this. I got a buddy of mine have, having me do a. Uh, uh, a book cover for him with um, with zombies on it, but it's uh, there's a twist to it. And I, but that's it. If I say, say the twist, somebody can go, "Ooh, that's a good idea." Uh, <laughs> better get my book, get get the jump on it, you know. But anyway, so you know, and I, I like I like uh, I like doing all that. You know, I like doing all the. My two dogs are attacking me. What is it, dogs? What is it? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Where? Oh yeah. <laughs> All right, go on, go, 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 go. Go on the wire. Go on now. Go on, go, go, go. Go, 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 go. This thing I just made me think of American Werewolf in London. Well, have you ever heard of uh, Paul Nashi, the, the Italian horror film guy? You know what I'm talking about? Sounds familiar, yeah. He's, he's, uh, he's uh, not Italian. He's um, um, Spain, uh, Spanish. Is it, did I get that right? Yeah, Spanish. I think, I think yeah. And he's, um, uh, um, I had to do a werewolf cover for a book about his films. And I didn't have the right pose I wanted. I had a good shot of the face, but I didn't have a good shot of the pose i wanted so i went outside kind of dressed in the kind of clothes that he wore in his films and i'm out in the backyard and i'm going like this and i start throwing my arms around like he does and these two dogs just jump up and just like and they like jump on me so anytime now i can just give them what i call the paul nashy effect i just go like and they just start they just yes for halloween i just did a my rendition i'll have to see the picture i did my version of uh uh bay lugosi jr's uh i I butchered his name whichever one it was did the wolfman my version of it and uh i was at a party and their dogs just kept coming up to me they're like what is this giant version of us (laughs) why is it walking on its hind legs (laughs) <laughs> yes yeah. yes and yeah. it was it, you could tell that it was it was an amateur but it, they're, they're like you look like one of us it basically it kind of looked like a, a mix between uh the wolf man and teen wolf kind of that right. planet of the ap looking <laughs> right 
Yeah, my girlfriend. I, I have, I've, I've seen you now. You talk about the Teen Wolf movie or the Teen Wolf TV show? Uh, the movie. The, okay. the my, I haven't seen the Michael TV J. series. I, my girlfriend's like, can you watch? It? I'm like, no, I'm gonna stick with Michael J. Fox. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you what. If I ever come through and we visit, I'll, uh, I'll let, I'll drop my girlfriend off with your girlfriend. They can watch Teen Wolf because she's crazy about it, and you and I'll go uh, look at some cartoons or something, <laughs> 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 or whatever it is. So from your point of view, I know I'm going to switch this a little bit and ask you a question. What is your big fandom thing that you go, or some of the things you go crazy for? Like, uh, you know, like uh, it's, it, it's are you a Mandalorian? Big. Are you a Mandalorian guy? Yes, I, I actually have my baby Yoda sitting next to me. And then my girlfriend has bought me a bunch of baby Yoda stuff. I know he's called Grogu, but he will always be baby Yoda. Um, nobody <laughs> wants to call him Grogu. <laughs> Linda and I take walks in the evening and it always comes back to baby Yoda. We will never call him Grogu. I call him that. Nigel. If you didn't know, Taika Waikiki on the set referred to him before they gave him the name, called him Nigel. So I always call my my little toy over here Nigel. <laughs> I don't blame you. Grogu sounds like something you got to go get a, 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 a shot for. You know, I told like, my friend, I was like, it sounds like a rejected Dragon Ball Z character. <laughs> it's really a weird name. And I think people rejected it straight out. They called him, they called him Grogu and everybody's like, ew. And then it's like, so, and nobody is using the name Grogu in media. Not that I am still Baby Yoda. That's yeah. fine. Or the That's, child. <laughs> yeah, the child. Uh, so uh, what other stuff? I mean, what? What's, um, I'm big uh, on like. Doctor Who, Star Trek. Uh, I'm just rewatching now. Uh, Babylon Five is a. I love that. Oh series. yeah, 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 yeah. That was good. Skullduggery on that show. I watched it when it was brand new. Yes, I, uh, years ago I had somebody. It was before that you could stream it. They gave me the. Uh, they had the box set that came out in the I think the early 2000s. They're like, here's this show. I'm gonna let you watch it. Same with the Doctor Who. How I got into that. It was a lot of the. The bootleg DVD sets before they made the official BBC. Criminals! <laughs> you were born in hell. Yes, I showed my, my girlfriend. I was like, okay, I have the official one. I was like, do you want to watch the official BBC DVD or my one I got at a convention that somebody put in a box with the DVD burns and everything? Right. Well, <laughs> which, like, which, which era of Doctor Who did you start with then? What was your, I mean, were you all the way back with the original stuff or were you with the with the modern guys the last decade or so well, it was a mix of both because the the person i that got me into it she has been a fan since like the beginning and uh how i went actually got through hulanta and uh she was like hey i'm going to show you david Tennant because that was the one at the time he was big at the time and then she was, like, yeah. also showed me um because i was like oh i like this is there i was like i know there's like references i don't get from the older stuff and then she's like okay here's the one that i have as of now, which was, she had uh, the seventh doctor and Pertree, and I started with Pertree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The third doctor, and I just fell in love with both the classic and the, you know, the the new era. And for me being a cosplayer, it's a lot easier that I noticed to do classic Who creatures and characters than it is new series. Yeah, well, nowadays they've got, they don't have an unlimited budget, but it looks like, if that, if, if Doctor Who that we see nowadays, the modern one, was put back 30 years ago on the large screen, it would look totally appropriate to be at the movie theater. Oh, because yeah. of Because of the production values, the special effects level. Back then, the old days, when I was first watching Doctor Who, it was charming, handmade special effects with flaws and everything, but you could look past it because 
I don't know, one, because of the acting. The the, the Brits have always had that ability. I mean, oh, yeah. Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee, sometimes they'd be fighting silly monsters in some of their films, and you'd look at them and go, yeah, but they believe it, so I believe it. And the same thing with with uh, Doctor Who is they they take it seriously even when the monster comes out you can see the seam running down the side and the you know the you know and it, and you know just all the little things that happen but i still find it to be wonderful i've got a oh huge, yeah i just i just love that old that's why i love special effects i just love the you can tell that it wasn't just somebody at a computer it was somebody physically in a shop had to go here's this idea how can i make this into something in the real world yeah and and the thing is is that is that when i when i watched i saw doctor who by mistake as a kid my brother and i were up at my aunt's house in washington dc and it was summer it was summer still for us we still had a week to go but kids were already in school and we were at my aunt's house and it was back when there was only 12 channels even if you had cable and it was really boring and it was like soap operas were on it was in the middle of the day and time life had bought a package of 10 john pertwee episodes I didn't know anything about Doctor Who. I didn't know what it was. And my brother and I are there, and it was like, oh, here's a game show. Boring. Here's a soap opera. More boring. Here's the news. Boring. Whatever. And then we're flipping around because the show was shot on videotape. We thought to ourselves, oh, this is another soap opera, but they're speaking with British accents. And it was two guys in a bar talking to each other. And I'm like, okay. And then they got into like a fight. And I'm like, oh, that's a little bit more. Soap operas do have fights in them sometimes, but that's a little unusual. Then immediately after that, you saw army men fighting a gargoyle that had just jumped off the side of a of a church. <laughs> and my brother and I looked at each other and went, oh, right, we struck gold. Yes. And we watched and it was the Daemons, uh, John Pertwee episode, uh, which, you know, is still one of my favorite episodes. But we couldn't believe that. We had, we're like, what is that show? And then I didn't see it again for another because we went back home. I didn't see it again until like 1980, 81 when it came to the PBS stations. And there was Tom Baker. And I said, wait a minute. I know that show, I think, but that guy's not the same. What, what is this all? <laughs> and then you had to find out about regeneration and all that stuff. But yeah, I mean, I Doctor Who has is, is got a very special place in my heart. It's classic. Uh, I mean, well, Star Trek, I love. Uh, matter of fact, I'm on a podcast uh, with Cinemondo people. We're doing uh, the classic original series uh, in order, and I kind of cherry pick my favorite episodes, and I come on and show it. And we do that, and I, I love the animated series and the films, and you know, uh, uh, the uh, different series and things like that. We're watching uh, Discovery now. We're in the in the new season right now, watching it. And, uh, you know, hey, Star Trek's going to, you know, going to keep going until, you know, time immemorial, I guess. Yes, that that's what I haven't seen yet is the Discovery. I've watched all the other ones, even the the Lower Decks animation. I still need to get into that. Uh, mm-hmm. like, like I told somebody who like recently, like watching Babylon 5, I was like, if you liked Deep Space Nine, you'll like this. Because it's a lot of reading the credits and meeting... Uh, Meeting the one of the writers, uh, Scott, uh, I'm gonna I forgot his last name, but he was one of the writers. He was at Hulanta, and he was uh, he has a show called Space Command, and mm-hmm. he was one of the writers on, on uh, Deep Space Nine. And he talks about going from there, and then basically going, okay, with Babylon Five, let's all the stuff that we couldn't do on Star Trek because of, you know, past canon or 
you know, prime directive and all this other stuff, what can we do here that we couldn't do because of boundaries with Star Trek? So pretty much it was all the renegade stuff they couldn't do on Star Trek put into Babylon 5. Yeah, Babylon 5 was great. Uh, I loved it. Um, Deep Space Nine was my favorite of the after the original series television shows. I liked that one quite a bit. And what sucked is that in this town, it started off, it had its regular night, and then they moved it, and then they moved it again. And then I come home one day from work, and it's on like at five o'clock in the afternoon, even though it's a brand new episode. That's usually like, you know, you're watching something like I Dream of Genie or, or, or something like, you know, the old shows that were on in, about five o'clock in the afternoon. And I'm like, why is, why is a brand new episode of Deep Space Nine on now? Why is it not on? It was usually like, I think it's Saturday nights, like at eight o'clock as a big event. And then they just shoved it into the to the regular afternoon time slot. And I'm like, do, do people, you know, so it was all over the place and, and I missed major chunks of it, but you know, I mean, I, I've got, I've got it on box set and I plan on going through whatever I missed. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's that, that's the series. That's the one that I fell in love with rewatching everything now that's on Netflix or wherever it's at going through and watching each series in title. It was deep space nine. Cause it was way different than the other ones. It wasn't like, Alien of the Week, it was the one that had the first continuation story in it. Arts. And yes, yeah. and that was one thing that a lot of people I've heard from different talking to different people. Deep Space Nine is one of the series that you either really like it, it's your favorite, or you didn't like it at all, being a Star Trek fan. Yeah, I gotta say most people I know really liked it. Uh but I think that um I, I will admit, I mean, the first season's a little weak in comparison. It gets better as it goes along. But, you know, that's the way modern television is. I mean, with me, with classic Star Trek, the first season is my favorite. Uh, second season's really good. Third season, uh, <laughs> it's got some good ones in there. Yes. <laughs> but, you know, they got they got screwed over by executives and stuff that slashed the budget and, and everything. We don't have any special effects for this episode, so let's get Shatner to act some more. Let's get him to go more over the top. You know, that episode where he's like, <laughs> he thinks he's a horse and he's going, Yee! do you remember that yes. one? Oh, yes, brother. yes, yes. Oh. But the thing is, is that there's still some good, just, you know, that's, that's all executive crap. That's their fault oh, yeah. at the show. I mean, Gene Kuhn should have never left the show. Roddenberry should have left it. You should have just let it keep going. And they, they didn't. They messed with it. And people wanted it. And they killed it. And, you know, um, that is one of the amazing things back pre-internet and all that kind of stuff that the fan base back then threw letters and envelopes, Manila envelopes. And fandom was all based on Xeroxing uh um uh, fanzines and sending them to each other and communication by mail and conventions and stuff and pushing and getting star trek back i mean just resuscitating a victim or a, a you know a a corpse okay. you know that they weren't going to do it and I'll, I'll say you know star wars coming out helped tremendously but at least star trek was at the starting gate and was already you know people have been talking about it for so long it, it naturally came back out but you know i mean uh um i oh, just yeah. I, I wish the show had had. I wish the show had had a good, serious, long run back in its initial run. I think it deserved it. Yeah, and I know a lot of the times, like at that time too, a lot of people didn't understand the concept of Star Trek because I know there's the story of when Gene originally pitched it to you know Lucille Ball, and they were like, "Yeah, it's Star Trek," and she's like, 
oh, it's a show about, you know, getting celebrities going on adventures. And she's like, um, no, that's uh, no, it's, it's going to be this. And he had to explain to her it's this thing in the future. And she just at, couldn't get the concept at first of what this was when he initially pitched the meeting to her for Desilu Studios. You know, what's interesting about that is that Lucy and I love Lucy was by far the most famous show for for years when i was a kid uh and i'm i mean i know i'm older than you but i mean trust me when 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 we were kids when i was you know five ten fifteen i love lucy ran all the time at whatever city you were in in the afternoons it was the first television show i think that was just straight out filmed matter of fact the guy that filmed the original dracula was the cameraman on on uh, i love lucy And they were filmed where most television shows were shot live and then kinescoped where they pointed a camera at the, at the TV set. Like the honeymooners, I think is kinescope, which is a shame, but you look at this show and it was so popular that everybody knew that I love Lucy was going to stay as being the most popular syndicated television show of all time. Well, that's interesting. She pulls the trigger on star Trek and star Trek which kind of for them at the time turned out to be kind of a flop, not their own fault, but it was, turns out to be even bigger. And and it's there and it's hers too. And it actually goes past I Love Lucy and is still at that colossal level. So in a way, you know, you gotta hand it hand it to her and 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 everything. You gotta you got a, a great show. But it is it is interesting to me too that she was involved in some ways with both of those. And then oh, did, yeah. you know, did you know the guy that sold the original show? Uh, did you ever read that? There was a book by Solo, uh, Herb, Herb Solo, I think his name is. Uh, he was the guy that sold the original Star Trek to the network. Did you ever hear about that? Oh, no, that, the, the Roddenberry is the only story one that I've ever heard was that. But with him talking to Lucy one-on-one, that's the only one I've ever heard. Well, he sold, he, he, he was in New York and they gave him the package for the show and said, okay, you get on the plane, you go, you, you, you go out to California, or or was it the other way? No, you're in California, you go out to, you go to New York. I apologize, I got that backwards. You go to New York and you go to the executives because New York was still kind of the, you know, the the, the main place to get the yeah. business done. So he's there and he brings that television show and he sells it. Now he's on the flight on the way back home and you can see the guys, there's other guys that pitched that same day that are on the same flight. Some of them are depressed because they didn't get the show sold. Some of them are okay. Some of them are having drinks and all this kind of stuff. He sold that show and he was quite happy. And so he got himself some drinks, but he also sold another show, a show that is still with us to this day, a show that is still being made and created to this day and it won't die. And that was Mission Impossible. He sold both of those shows the same day. Awesome. He, he sold both of those shows the same day uh, and and think about it. There's st- still Mission Impossible. There's still Star Trek. That's you crazy. Know? And it's like and it's like and you know, there's other guys that were on that flight who didn't sell anything. And they're like, mm, well, I sold two. <laughs> you know, it's sort of like. But, you know, both of those are still super famous all these years later. It's pretty cool. You know. Oh, yeah. It's like the thing I always told with, Do- with Doctor Who, going back to that, like the regeneration thing like when they originally came up with the concept a lot of people were like oh they had that plan i'm like no i'm guarantee you it was like hey how can we make another season of this television series 
They didn't think, oh, this is going to be a plot device that we can use to keep this show going 50 years, 60 years later. It was just, hey, how can we get another season out of this? Well, and it's it's it was it's sort of like the transporter on Star Trek. We don't really want to keep having to pay for new special effects every week of our little space pod leaving the big ship and going down to the planet's surface. That costs money. Well, what would we come up with? Uh, Maybe beam them down, you know, beam them down to the planet's surface. And I think they looked at Forbidden Planet where the guys, where the spaceship is slowing down and they put these guys in these sort of like on these platforms and their body goes from hyperdrive, their, their very being, as they slow the ship down, they go from hyperdrive down to normal and everybody steps off the platform after they kind of turn green for a second and go, oh, God, I hate when we do that. And it was like later in Star Trek, I bet you somebody kind of looked at this and said, oh, what if they fizzled out and just appeared on the planet's surface and everything like that? And I think it was that it's that thing where somebody's thinking you manage to keep the show going you know, with Doctor Who. It's like, OK, we're going to try something crazy. We're just going to, you know do this nutty thing where the guy falls down dead and the other guy wakes up in his place and everything like fades out and the new guy fades in and his personality is a little different there's and then they start saying well there's been more of us before and there'll be more after and all this other kind of stuff and i mean it's it's actually become very canon of standard i mean you know uh, it's become it was it was just a little brilliant little idea by somebody who thought of it off the cuff you know, of how to save money and make more episodes. <laughs> yeah, how to save money and make more episodes. Keep going, but um, you know, and the thing is, is that is that there's a tradition. Doggy, doggy, what are you, doggy, doggy? Quit. I'm, I'm on TV here. Okay, I'm trying to do this show. Uh, that uh, you look at at things like uh, you know Doctor Who with their micro budget and Star Trek with its it had it had a it had a decent budget for a television show at the time, but. But you look at that and it's like those things became now people are like, hey, oh, I heard the doctor's going to regenerate this year. Oh, let's watch. You know, they, they like the ratings go up a bit, you know, to, to, to watch uh, to watch uh, the, you know, to watch the person change over because it's an event now. Oh, yeah. I know. And when Jody, I think I was like one of the, I was like, okay, I'm only watching the end of this sports thingy because I want to see what happens when the doctor, who's going to be announced. Like right. I was at my sister's house. I was like, okay, this is what time it is in England. I was like, I know it's like 2 a.m. I was like, okay, it's this time here. I was like, okay, I got to make sure I'm watching ready to go when they announce it. Cause I don't want to be late and get spoiled. I want to know exactly when it happened. So when I saw it, my sister was like, what's wrong? What's wrong? I was like, I can't believe it. Look what they did. And then now I go back and I'm like, wow, that was stupid. I actually like her as a character. <laughs> uh, you talking about J- uh, Jodie uh, Whittaker? Yes. Oh, I mean, I think she's fine. I, I think she does a good job. I don't think, I'm going to say this. I don't think they've ever cast a bad person as Doctor Who. Oh, no. I don't think they ever have. I think they, they've had bad seasons. And showrunners, yeah. And showrunners, and they've had bad streaks and everything like that. Unfortunately, I think the ratings on the on the current seasons are are pretty pretty weak, which I'm I'm sorry to hear. But I mean, anybody, uh, Colin Baker, you know, people have picked on him before, but I'm like, no, I think he was quite good. I think he was, yeah, he was a big mouth. Yeah, he was more irate than other oh, doctors. Yeah. But to me, he reminded me more of William Hartnell. When when uh, oh, hold on for a second. Hey, babe, I'm on a podcast. See you in a minute. Bye. 
I'm going to have to go in a minute. But anyway, back to what we were talking oh, about. Three, fine. two, one. Um, I think that, dog, will you go? I'm trying to talk. Go. Anyway, three, two, one. Uh, but I think that that all the doctors would go. Now, the, well, I will say this. The only one that I ever went like, wow, that ain't so good, was that Peter Cushing movie. And Lord knows I love Peter Cushing. You know, I mean, he's he's so great as Victor Frankenstein. He was so great as Moff Tarkin. I mean, he's just great in so many things. But they they did the movie, and it was really a different character. It was this oh, yeah. doddering old grandfather from Earth who was doing this. So they completely threw out the concept of the show. And so I, I wasn't enamored with that. But all the people on the show, from William Hartnell all the way through to the current, they're all they're all top notch actors. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, and 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 people kind of lay it, I think, sometimes on the actor when the season isn't that good. It's like it ain't their fault. It ain't their fault. Oh yeah, that's the all I've always heard from everybody is like, with especially with just folks on Jody. It's like, yeah, I love her, Jody herself and the character. It's it's not her fault. It's the people writing for her and the the management team, like Chibnall. That's that's everybody I've ever talked to. Like, yeah, it's not her. I love her. Just yeah. not the writing. <laughs> yeah, and I think uh, are they saying that she's going to quit or is she? Is she? I it heard depend- some- I've seen different ones that I've seen that she's saying she's quit, but then I've seen that she's saying no, two more, two more series. So it just depends on the source you're looking at. So just like I, I, there was one I saw, and Mike Faber from ESO was like, "Uh, I don't." I don't, nah, I don't believe that source. I've seen stuff from them, and it's it's crap. So I was like, okay, good. I I don't want to trust that source, anyways. <laughs> well, I hope I hope that f- for the sake of the show, that they, I guess the showrunner or whatever needs to either wake up a little bit more, or and I haven't seen the last season. I saw the 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 one I think before, or have I? I think I'm. I think I haven't seen the very last season, but I saw the how many seasons you done? Three, right? uh two yeah this this oh, most recent one is two yeah oh okay so yeah I have, this coming one that's coming out near future will be her third right and uh yeah because uh three comes after two yeah oh that works yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway yeah i mean but i'm like you know uh, keep the keep the keep the characters they're all good i got no problem with that just juice up the writing or 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 get rid of the showrunner or something do something to to do it but you know you can't you can't take something like like doctor who and let it go you know you don't want to see see that go over a cliff you know you wanted to you wanted to survive uh, you know um you know I, I i i want the best for the show you know oh yes now uh is there any like uh because i know you said you had to go here i'll i'll let you go uh how, what are your uh where can they find you or what is your, you know, things that you want people to find your stuff or where they can find your contact, your commissions or anything like that? We are, uh, my, my, uh, if you go to Facebook, if you use Facebook, a lot of people are deserting it lately, but if you use it, uh, it's Mark, I'm the Mark Maddox in Tallahassee. And if you want to see some of my work, I always post the new stuff, but also too, if there's a, there's a folder in my photos called some of Mark's art. And I post things all the time of work that I'm doing on my, my feed. Um, I've got a website, but it's old and dusty and needs to be cleaned up. Uh, Maddoxplanet.com, M-A-D-D-O-X-P-L-A-N-E-T.com. That's got the older stuff, but you can still contact me, you know, uh, and, and everything I do. I do commissions. 
we are putting together and are very near to launch our square store, you know, the square reader thing. Uh, we, we, we got it and um, we'll be launching that soon. Uh, and it'll have uh, a lot of my magazines that have the covers that I've done, uh, prints and original artwork, uh, you know, that, that we put on there. So it'll be, um, but I don't, we haven't, I don't think we put out the name yet or anything. I don't know if we've got that, but we built the store and we've got to do a few of the things like some of the back work of, uh, uh, what do you call it? The stuff where you, you, you know, you talk about the shipping, you get all that settled uh, for, for people buying stuff. I mean, we haven't just haven't gotten to that, but we will, um, but I'll be doing that too uh soon and i'll probably post it and i probably am going to start using instagram a lot more but yeah facebook is usually the funnest way to get a hold of me because you chat back and forth and people go hey this artwork stinks maddox and <laughs> and things like that but uh, but then that's a way to see a lot of my work and stuff and like i said i do commissions you know for whatever pen, anything from pencil to to acrylic to oil paints to digital to whatever pen and inks you name it awesome yes and once you get that the web store and everything, just let me know and I'll uh, add that in the show notes and everything. Even if it's after the episode comes out, I'll add it in there for you as well. Cool. Well, I really appreciate it, you know, and, and maybe I can come back on the show sometime. We can talk more. Oh, think... yeah. yeah. All my guests always welcome back here. That'll be fun. That'll be fun. But uh, oh, yeah, cool. I mean, I've had a great time talking to you. I really appreciate it. And, you. Uh, you know, go ahead. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I was just saying, uh, yeah, yeah. Had a good time. Like I said, it was great meeting you at uh, Hulanta and seeing your art. Like, when you said the real stuff, like I gave my stepdad the Star Trek one you did, and he was like, wait, that's a art painted? And I was like, yes. And he was like, that is amazing. <laughs> was that the uh, was that the uh, Picard data board? Yes. yes. That was for um, a, a, a toy package from MC Toys back before when they still had the the uh, license to do the Mego stuff. So there was a uh, there was a they had all four of the paintings I did plus the enterprise, but there was two of the toys actually got produced. I got upstairs. One is a a board, and I think the other was a Picard. They didn't get to do the other. Oh two. yes, I've seen that in Ollie's. <laughs> they had a. It looked like a. It looked like a Migos knockoff, even though it was from Migo. Uh, it was. Saw... They were heavy. They were very. They were they were heavier than Migos. I was kind of surprised when I finally got you know. I think I saw an Elvis one and a Jimi Hendrix as well from that same yeah. company. MC did a good job on that, but they didn't. Um, but they, but I guess Migo went ahead and got it back up. I think I don't know. I mean, unless they're running simultaneously. But anyway, um, so yeah, and when you uh, get the show uh, prepped and everything, uh, you know, why don't you just go ahead and and put it up on my Facebook page. Okay, you know, cool. And we'll link link it, and then people can, you know, just click on it and go. But uh, anyway, well, I really All appreciate right. it, buddy. Hey, everyone. That's going to be another episode of the Phantom Squad podcast. Mark, would you like to say our outro? Enjoy the madness. All right. That's going to be another episode, everyone. You are now leaving the Phantom Squad podcast. I don't want to go.